This is Technically Legal, the podcast about legal technology, innovation in the legal industry, and the impact tech is having on the law. I'm Chad Main, the founder of Legal Services Company Percipient. And on this episode, I have a conversation with lawyer and consultant John Grant about how legal teams can adopt agile and Kanban methodologies to optimize the workflows and to get the most out of the people and the tools they've already invested in. On today's show, I have a great conversation with John Grant about employing project management techniques into legal work. I really dig this conversation because John offers some real-world tips that anyone can use, and not just those in legal. You and your team can use these tips to streamline the way you're doing your work so you can identify and correct bottlenecks and increase overall client satisfaction. Before we jump into my conversation with John, I should probably give a quick preview of some of the project management concepts he talks about, including traditional project management techniques like waterfall, but newer ones like lean and agile. The traditional or the waterfall project management method involves a sequential approach where each stage has got to be finished before a team can move on to the next one. Agile methodology is a newer one. It emerged from the software development community. It's a flexible approach where tasks are broken down into small increments with not a lot of planning and the processes are iterative. As we will hear, Agile is one of John's favorites because he believes it's well-suited for legal work. John will also mention Scrum, which is related to Agile methodology that emphasizes teamwork. Lean is another methodology we'll touch on, which focuses on continually improving processes and eliminating waste. This is an OG project management concept developed in Japan by Toyota. John also talks about the value of a Kanban board. This is a visual tool used to manage various stages of the process. You've probably seen some old school ones that are on a whiteboard and there's sticky notes for each stage of a project, or you've probably used some of them online like Asana or Basecamp or project management software like that. These Kanban boards typically are divided into a few columns, minimally such as to do, doing, and done. Let's get to it with my conversation with John. As I mentioned, John's a lawyer. You might be asking, why is he so into project management methodologies? Well, despite coming from a long line of lawyers, before he went to law school, he first worked in tech. So you're a fourth-generation lawyer? I am, yeah. How far back does it go? Would it be your great-great-grandfather? I've got great-grandfathers on both sides of my family who were lawyers. And where were they geographically? One of them was in Los Angeles. So my great-grandfather on my mom's side was a guy named Lloyd Wright uh, with one L. And he was one of the early pioneers in entertainment law. Oh, nice. So he had this client base that's, you know, to this day, the coolest client base of anyone I've ever heard of, where you were like his B clients were Shirley Temple and W.C. Fields. And his A clients were Charlie Chaplin and Walt Disney and Howard Hughes. So where did you grow up? I grew up in the idyllic village of Bakersfield, California, because my dad's family got into farming in post-World War II era. So I heard you say it was expected of you, so maybe I, a little bit of pressure for you to go to law school, but you didn't. And now learning that you like the Grateful Dead, now it makes more sense. <laughs> because if I remember right, out of, out of college, you took a road trip, which ultimately landed you in Seattle because... You, you liked it up there. So tell me about this road trip. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I, I wouldn't say it was expected of me. That's probably too much. It just was always around, right? It was always an idea. I mean, I grew up in California. I did my undergrad in Boston, which was great. I loved it, but it was culturally uh, a lot of adjustment. And eventually I decided I wanted to go back to the West Coast. But part of the reason I went to Boston to begin with is I wanted to sort of get as far from, you know, 
Bakersfield in you know specifically in California. I just was looking for different I adventures. I would say Boston so, is uh, um, fairly fairly different from Bakersfield, California. Yeah, yeah. And so I hung out for a summer after I graduated. I had lots of friends that were farming families, so I can't remember. I think I worked another farm job that summer. It was the easiest way for me to make uh, to make some money quick. And then took off on a road trip late that summer, early fall. And uh, I looked at um, Northern California. I looked at a couple of places in Oregon. And then I landed in Seattle on one of those bluebird August days with the Olympic Mountains across the Puget Sound and ferries going by. And it hooked me, right? It's it's the, uh, it's the most dangerous days uh, of the year in Seattle because it is when you get uh, you get sucked in. You ultimately get to law school, but you, you ended up in tech. The yeah. company became or was acquired by Getty Images. I had a lot of interest in photography back then. I haven't really kept up with it as much lately, but um, there was a company called Photodisc. And in a lot of ways, that was my best first grad school. It was a, an amazing experience. And I, I started, I was right around employee number 100. Photodisc's great innovation originally was uh, hey, we don't have to move pieces of film around in a physical format in order to sell photography. We can move pieces of plastic around, right, in the form of CD-ROMs and even floppy disks in, in the early, early days. And we can sort of create this different way of providing a product to our end users, which are primarily graphic designers and ad agencies and, and things like that. And what they realized is that those folks were having to scan them and put them into Photoshop anyway. And Photodisk had better scanners than most people had access to. They, these amazing, it's called a Heidelberg drum scanner. Uh, I still remember seeing them. And it, it was super high tech, created this really high resolution scan. And so it wound up being a product that was more convenient for the end user not because it showed up on CD, but because of what the end user didn't have to do with it. They, they got this better quality scan without having to invest themselves. And because it didn't make sense to necessarily do this one-to-one -one sale of an image, uh, if you're shipping a disc that's capable of holding 300 images, why not come up with a little bit different licensing model, different sales model in order to sell someone a bundle of things? And, you know, people would buy those discs with 300 images on them. They might only ever use four or five or six, but they liked having the options. And so it was a superior client experience, customer experience. And then they had the dumb luck that Netscape Navigator showed up. Oh, oh. We were one of the first companies that I know of, and there's always an asterisk in that, which is uh, except for porn, <laughs> um, that was actually both taking payment and then delivering product over the internet. We were doing it well before Amazon or Netflix or any anyone else was doing it that way, right? Amazon was selling physical books. Netflix was renting physical CDs. We actually were delivering the product over the internet. But at some point you decide actually to go to law school and you get back to tech, I think in a legal capacity, but what was it that did change? You said, hey, I do want to get a law degree. You know, so Photos got acquired by Getty. Um, it was technically, it was a merger and it was great. It was this rocket ship ride. I learned a ton. The leadership team was fantastic. Everything about it was really, really cool. And we were disruptive innovators, right? We went on this tear where the company was acquiring and basically consolidating the entire stock photography industry around itself and this use of technology to deliver a superior customer experience. Eventually, it got to the point where we weren't growing so much as defending the, the turf that, that we gained. And... I think for a lot of us that were part of that original rocket ship ride, it was just a paradigm shift that wasn't as cool. We kind of 
you know, got this idea that we should move on to the next hot company. And we thought they were a dime a dozen back then, right? right. We didn't realize how unique an experience we had had. And so I did. I bounced around to a few different smaller startups. None of them really got traction. And at some point, I took the LSAT as a plan B. And then that sort of you know, generated its own momentum. And uh, yeah, I wound up in law school, loved law school. You know, I was a, quote, older law student. I think you know, one of the things about my law school experience is that there was no professor that was doing a Socratic grilling that could be half as scary as the CEO or the CFO wow, that I used to have to give reports to. How old were you when you were in law school? I was uh, early 30s by then. So, you know, I wasn't an old, old right. law student, but I was older than the average. Quote, unquote, non-traditional, as they used to say. <laughs> non-traditional, yeah, sure. Although the, the law school I went to, Lewis and Clark, had a pretty high percentage of uh, folks But like you me. get back with Getty Images as corporate counsel. I did. Yeah. And it was, uh, I mean, it's funny even to call it, I, I always call it in-house counsel more than corporate counsel, just because I really was just learning how to be a lawyer. And, and you know, they didn't hire me based on my legal prowess. They hired me because I knew the business right, already. Right. I knew the business model. Which is important, and, which is important um, for in-house counsel. That's, at, the, that's yeah, the biggest complaint at, in-house counsel has about their attorneys, right? They don't understand the business, especially outside counsel. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it worked out well for me as sort of a first landing place. It actually was a temp gig. I was subbing in for one of their actual corporate counsel who was taking a family leave. Uh, and then that got extended a couple of different times. I never was actually a, a, a full-time employee for them again. I was always a contractor. And by the time they offered me a full-time gig, I was already sort of realizing, okay, this has been great, a nice landing place, but I want to be more entrepreneurial. I want to be out in the world. And so that's when I hung my own shingle and kept Getty as a client. So I was, I was doing a lot of work for them as outside counsel in the copyright trademark uh, arena. Yeah. That was my next question. So IP was your, was your focus? Yeah, absolutely. And I was doing a lot of things. I actually wound up again, because knowing the business is half the battle, I picked up a ton of clients in the stock media industry, right? Specifically stock photography and my partner and I were doing uh, a lot of copyright enforcement type work. And it was interesting work. It was hard, right? It was number one, it was the height of the Great Recession. So we launched a law practice at sort of the worst possible time in, you know, in generations to try to launch a business. But fortunately, he and I both had this tech background. And so this was back in what, 2000, late 2008. And we were paperless and cloud based and basically doing all the things that were pretty new back then. We were doing them right out of the chute. And so that gave us some efficiency advantages, some um, cost control advantages over traditional practices that had to, had to replace their old ways of working with this new way of working. You get into consulting ultimately, and that's why we're here to talk about today. But you just, you know, yeah. you have a great background for it because you're not just a consultant out of the box. You, you were in-house. So you've, you've got that knowledge. And then you ran your own practice, which is its own unique animal, because as we all know, running a law practice is a little bit different than running a brick and mortar business, right? You know, it's different. Well, even before that, my career at Getty was as an operations professional. Right. So I was always around, I, I mean, I was the the head of sales operations for North and South America at one point. So, you know, I knew how to run bigger operations departments. I knew how to interface with sales teams and legal teams and HR and marketing. And, and really a lot of my career at Getty was sitting at the hub of different functions and translating. And I think that's a skill that that made me Number one, effective as a as a lawyer, but then eventually what my partner and I both realized is that we liked working on our practice more than in right. our practice. And some of the things that we were doing and developed really did translate to 
things that could help other legal teams. And so we initially went into consulting together. We eventually, our interests sort of diverged and we're still great friends, but he took himself a little bit more down the bigger law firm pathway and he worked for some of the bigger legal technology or legal consulting companies. I always had a soft spot for people law, for everyday uh, needs. And so my practice has been more focused on small to mid-sized firms and those that, that primarily practice people law, although not exclusively, right? I've, I've got a couple of big law clients. Mostly it's smaller teams within a bigger law firm or ironically, I've done a lot of consulting, although not in the last few years for Getty Images, where I went back from a legal operations standpoint and um, had this funny conversation one time where I said, you know, you realize that you're hiring me to teach you things that I learned from you. And they said, yeah, but that wasn't in the legal department, right? right? I, you're, we're hiring you to teach the legal department how to do things that the rest of the business seems to know how to do, but we're struggling with it. When we come back in just a couple minutes, John tells us about his consultancy and how he helps legal teams implement project management techniques into their work and how it all starts with the Kanban board. I'm Chad Main, and you're listening to Technically Legal. We need to do more with less. That is the key takeaway nowadays from almost every survey of in-house counsel. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if you actually could do more for less? By combining legal expertise and technology, Percipient enables legal teams to get more work done for less. Buried in contracts and sales is frustrated with turnaround time? We can help with that. Did you just get hit with a subpoena and reviewing 100,000 documents and files will tax your resources or cost you a small fortune in billable hours? We can help there too. Our team of legal professionals leverage tech and project management principles with the right amount of human oversight to deliver precise, efficient, and cost-effective legal solutions. Whether it's legal operations and contract management support, subpoena compliance, or document review, Percipient is your partner in really doing more for less. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology. All right, we'll get back to my conversation with John Grant in just a second. But before we do, I want to direct you to tlpodcast.com. There you'll find an episode page for this episode and every other episode we've done with more information about our guests and links to some of the stuff we talk about. If you want to get a hold of me for any comments, criticisms, or concerns, or any episode ideas, you can email me at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. Or you can find me on X, a.k.a. Twitter, or on LinkedIn. All right, let's get back to my conversation with John Grant. So you run into me at a cookout. And you say you consult legal teams. Specifically, what do you do? What's your pitch? My sort of mission statement tagline is that I help law practices of all kinds, legal teams, build practices that are more profitable, scalable, and sustainable for themselves and the communities they serve, right? So I'm really looking for, maybe it's a little Pollyanna-ish, but I'm really looking for things that are having an impact both on the team, the firm, whatever, but also trying to make the world a better place, right? Making the, the wheels of justice turn a little more smoothly. And what you focus on specifically is the process, the systems, uh, project management. I'm assuming that you like this and got this idea to do this from these processes you learned at the tech companies, right? Because they're very process and system driven. And then you decided to apply that to law. Yeah, and my aha moment was 
When I left Getty to go to law school, it was, I think, 2002 or three, and we were primarily using traditional methods of project management, right? What's now thought of as waterfall project management. It's the stuff that people go and get PMI certified, the Project Management Institute, and you get a project management professional certification. And the basics of project management are great, right? And, and they don't actually change depending on methodologies, but there's some elements of the PMP approach to project management that had grown suboptimal. And so while I was away in law school and before I wound up doing this in-house work at Getty, they had completely pivoted and adopted an agile methodology for managing um, their technology systems, their technology programs, and they're primarily a tech company. So I had this really fascinating before and after that where I said, oh, wow, this agile thing is super interesting and it's working because I can see it with, you know, I know how it was before and I can see what's going on afterwards. And, you know, the dangerous moment was I thought to myself, I wonder if this could work for lawyers. Well, I no longer wonder if it can work for lawyers. I know it can work for lawyers because I've been doing it on a consulting basis. I've been doing it for 10 years now. So you're an agile guy. But before we get there, get in the weeds with agile. Let's talk about the different flavors. They're all kind of similar in, in the relate. So you got, <laughs> you know, you talked about project management waterfall. Then you've got lean, which I, agile, I, I believe, is kind of an offshoot of that. Then you got the Kanban, which you, which you like to. Like, just to the layman, explain these different flavors and why you prefer one over the other. And I guess prefer is a strong word, right? I really try to keep growing my toolbox. And so I use a lot out of the lean toolbox. I use a lot out of the agile toolbox. Once you get under the capital A Agile umbrella, I would say the most common sort of methodology underneath that is Scrum. And I won't go too, too deep into Scrum, except to say, and that's where I started, right? I, my first Agile certification was a certified Scrum master. And I really thought when I first was doing this work that I should get more legal teams to use Scrum to manage their caseloads. But what I learned and also what sort of Scrum in the technology industry learned over time is that Scrum kind of struggles in multi-project environments. And Scrum really wants a dedicated team of people working on one thing at a time and in a multi-project environment. And in the tech world, multi-project is like three or four or five. And under that definition, law firms are extreme multi-project environments, right, where you've got people using, you know, dozens or if not hundred or more cases at once. And so Scrum sort of broke down as a methodology when you get to that scale. And I increasingly started using some elements of Scrum. And, and one of the nice things about Scrum is it already uses a Kanban board to visualize work. And that that's one of the most powerful elements of an agile methodology. And we should explain what a Kanban board is. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, so diving, I guess, taking those those three steps back, it's and, and everyone's seen them by right. now, which is a nice thing. Right. So Trello, Asana, Lawmatics uses a Kanban board. Clio uses a Kanban board. Well, the, relatively new. Clio Grow uses a Kanban board. It's that thing where there are columns that represent states of work and then cards that represent units of work. Or sticky notes. And the idea, manual, which I know you're a big proponent of. Yeah, no, I, I love a good physical board. You know, the pandemic kind of broke me of the insistence that everyone start with this physical board because it just wasn't realistic. But the most fundamental board, the, the columns are to-do, doing, and done. And I often talk about how the comparison is sort of against a to-do list, right? And, you know, that the thing that every lawyer has carrying that, that yellow legal pad around with a bunch of checkboxes on it. 
And one of the problems with a to-do list is it's good at telling you what needs to be done and it's good at telling you what's already done, but it doesn't really tell you what's in progress. And so a Kanban board introduces this third state, which is stuff that is in flight. It's a, you're, you're working on it, but it's not done yet. And it turns out that that is a really critical concept in agile methodologies and, and efficiency methodologies, because one of the biggest obstacles to getting more done is throwing too many balls in the air at one time. And it, it divides your attention. You wind up having to focus on the space between balls instead of actually working on any of the individual work items in order to get them finished. And you've already hinted at this. You are of the belief that law is well-suited for the agile approach. It is extremely well-suited. And, and again, when I first sort of started pursuing this, it was an open question, right? I'm trying to figure out how can I use some of these and translate some of these principles and practices and methodologies into things that lawyers will actually find useful. When you say the principles, you should point out the agile methodology or principles were put together by a group of software developers that got together and kind of created some rules of the road, right? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there, there's an Agile manifesto, and I can't remember how many times, but it mentions the word software multiple times. Right. And so, you know, obviously, lawyers aren't producing software, but what lawyers have in common with software developers is we're, we're knowledge workers, right? And you mentioned Lean earlier. One of the things that I sometimes talk about is that a Kanban board is a visual fiction that allows knowledge workers to see their work. And, you know, it's not real. That card on the board isn't the TPS report that I have to, to draft and deliver. But by giving it that visual, physical form, it then allows my brain to process my workload differently. And that's sort of the first magical thing that happens when I engage with new clients, new teams, by, number one, defining what the columns on the board should be. And, and I should say, I'll, I'll back up for a second, there's lots of different ways to build a Kanban board. And one of them is a little bit more focused on personal productivity or maybe small team productivity. And that's that to-do working done board. And when you build that kind of board, what you wind up doing to expand it is build out the to-do column further and further to the left. And so you might have a today and then a tomorrow and then a later this week and then later this month. And, you know, I, I try to, to tell people not to get too granular with that. My boards often have really technical terms like soonish, um, <laughs> right? Because it, you know, aside from today and tomorrow, you can't really make a plan that's a great plan anyway. But that's one level of board. And so that board is well suited to task level work. Which law is, which law is. You have different tasks in a project. Well, yeah. it can be, yeah. Although when I engage with, a, especially a law firm team, although the, this can be true for an in-house team as well, I find that the most impactful board is a matter-level board. And so with a matter-level board, what we're doing, instead of expanding the to-do column to the left, we're actually pulling apart the in-progress column. And we create sub-columns that represent different phases of doing. And so if you're a litigator those phases might initially pretty closely mirror the rules of procedure, right? So you're going to have a pleadings phase and then a, an initial discovery phase and then maybe a summary judgment phase and, and so on and so on. And, and the matter is going to flow through those phases of work. If you're in a transactional practice, there's maybe you know, a research and then a drafting and then an approval and execution and then an implementation phase. 
those are really, really high level, but that's a good starting point for any team. And basically then what we do is say, okay, these are the phases of work as represented by columns on the board. Then the cards on the board are individual cases or individual matters. And that winds up giving teams a really great visual look into where is all the work in my system, right? One, one of the primary things I hear from clients when they're reaching out to me or prospects when they're reaching out to me is, I'm worried something's about to fall through the cracks. And a Kanban board goes a long way towards being able to say, yeah, I see everything. Therefore, I'm less worried that it's going to fall through the cracks. Something you point out too, you, number one, you love the visual aspect of a Kanban board because you can see what's going on. But importantly, it helps you easily identify the bottleneck, right? The part of your process that gets gumming things up. That's right. And, you know, that's a slightly different. And, and the theory of constraints, sometimes known as bottleneck theory, is a, another one of these higher level philosophies. It's sort of lean adjacent, although, again, a lot of Agile folks use it too. And the uh, provenance isn't actually as important as the techniques that come from it. And the thing that the theory of constraints teaches us is that in any high level workflow, there may be lots of sticking points in that workflow, but only one of them is the worst, right? It's, it's another way of saying every chain has a weakest link. When you put that chain under tension, one of them is going to break first, right? There may be lots of things that look rusty. There might be lots of parts of your law practice that you'd like to improve, but only one of them is really governing the flow of work through your entire system. Once we make that work visible, as you said, the bottlenecks tend to become pretty apparent. And then once there's maybe one or two or three candidates, then we can assess, okay, which one of these is actually the worst? And, and how do we then engage in some, uh, some efforts, some experiments to try to get work to flow more clearly, uh, more smoothly through that bottleneck? And I think I heard you say, at a high level, you think law practice has three different kind of systems. You're getting business system, you're doing business system. Then I believe it was the closing business system or the back office system. Yeah, the the, the getting paid system. Getting paid system, right? right. I mean, and, and, and the getting paid system, I often say that's the easiest one to solve for. If you're in a law practice that's carrying a lot of AR or other things, or you're maybe writing off a lot of time, there's pretty tried and true ways. You know, evergreen billing, evergreen retainers is one. If you're an hourly biller, making sure you're getting some money up front. If you're a flat fee biller. Contingency, that's a little bit harder, but you don't get paid on contingency unless the check comes in from the defendant anyway. And so it's a relatively well-known set of problems to try to solve. My experience, once you say, okay, if your bottleneck's not in that getting paid system, it's either going to be in the getting the work system or the delivery system. And my experience is that most legal teams, most law firms are over-invested in their getting the work systems and under-invested in their delivery systems. So we're going to get to the how-to, what you recommend lawyers and legal teams to do to start moving down this path towards agile thinking and systems and workflows. But before we get there, I want to stick in the theoretical space for a second. So if you go to the Agile Manifesto, there's a couple of things that I thought were interesting I wanted to ask you about. So here's one that I thought was interesting because the world has changed since they wrote this manifesto. And I, I want to understand how it's been adopted and how we can still meet this principle. The, the, the principle is the most efficient and effective method of conveying information and within a development team is face-to-face -face conversation. Well, everybody's working remote now. So 
not everybody, but it's, it's, it's more prevalent. So how do we do that? Is it project management software like Slack? Is it Zoom calls? Or is it, am I reading too much into this? Well, okay. So I actually think that the core of that is still true, right? I think the most effective way is still face-to-face communication, but that's not always feasible. It's not always plausible if you've got a distributed team. And so the question then is, how do we get as close as possible to that ideal of face-to-face communication, knowing that we can't do it? And, and I think Zoom or you know, video conferencing more broadly is probably the first obvious answer to that. I think phone calls are the next one. <laughs> And, you know, I know, right, there's all the talk and, and I'm the parent of a couple of Gen Zers and, you know, yeah, they don't like to talk yeah, on the, the phone, phone and, well, and phone that's call, real. Why, why don't you just call me? I'm outside. Just, yeah. just call me. No. <laughs> so foreign. <laughs> no. And it's to the point now where if I call people out of the blue, I feel like I have to apologize yeah. for doing it. But that said, it still is a far better way of conveying, of communicating information. I'll give you an example, and this is something that I work on a lot with the teams that I consult for. When it comes to client homework, there's always phases, and and I should back up and say, client homework is almost always a bottleneck in a law practice. You know, whether it's the worst one or not, I don't know, but you're getting information from your clients so that you can continue down the path of doing your legal work is always a sticking point. So like if you're an estate planning attorney, they need to see your life insurance policies or what have you, your PDL statement. Even if you're a litigator and you got to go answer a right. bunch of interrogatories or, or whatever, right? It's, it's all getting that information out is always, always a slow point. And the thing that lawyers do because we think it's efficient is we type it all up in a document or an email And we engage in what I uh, jokingly refer to as fence chucking, which is to say we throw it over the fence, we land it in the client's lap, and we say, get this back to me as soon as you can. And number one, if you don't give a deadline, that's really, that's that's a big mistake. So I always advocate giving people shorter deadlines than you think. We, We think we're doing people a favor by giving them a long deadline. My default rule for client homework deadlines is three days. You know, there may be reasons to adjust that, but um you know, information has a half-life and motivation has a half-life. And so better to give people a short deadline and shoot for that turnaround time and then deal with it uh, if you can't get it. But even better than a three-day turnaround time, and actually this is part of what I, I recommend is, you know, if you're going to push that client homework over to the client, give them that short deadline. And then if they miss it, don't nag them about, oh my God, I can't believe you missed this deadline. You must really not care about your legal matter. Schedule a phone call with them. Schedule a meeting with them and say, hey, I understand. I gave you this bunch of homework. I understand. Maybe you've got some questions. Maybe it's overwhelming. Let's just spend 45 minutes talking about it. And lawyers, I'm sure there's people right now going, oh, my God, that is so inefficient. I don't want to spend my time talking with the client. But there's a difference between resource efficiency and flow efficiency. And so from a your resource standpoint, you might even be saying I, the client doesn't want to pay me to babysit them through the homework, which I'm question that, but I, I won't go down that rabbit hole. I think clients like talking to their lawyer and there's a lot of confusing like paying things. And <laughs> they, well, they don't love reason, paying for, for it, but they're reason. willing to pay for progress. Right. And if they feel like they're getting progress through a conversation, they'll pay for that. And they'll more happily pay for that than they'll pay for you nagging them right. to get their homework back. That said, the thing that everybody misses about process improvement, everyone's focused on how do I make the work that I do more efficient, right? How can I use AI to draft a brief faster, right? That's the thing that we're hearing in, in all the uh, the zeitgeist right now. But I think that's great. I think that's interesting. 
what I know is that if you want to increase the efficiency of delivering legal work, you shouldn't work on the working phases. You need to work on the waiting phases. You need to work on those times when and shortening those times when nobody's actually working. It's just sitting there waiting for a resource. A lot of that time is bottleneck, right? It's waiting on the something to get done. You know, if you, the lawyer, are the bottleneck or someone on your team is a bottleneck, then that's, you know, when I do process improvement work, that's what we're doing. We're figuring out how can we either protect that bottleneck and get them, right? If, if you're a lawyer and you're a bottleneck in delivering legal work, but you keep taking new client inquiries, right? You're spending your time on intake instead of on delivery, then you're never going to deliver, right? This, you're, you're basically making bad promises in those intake calls because the work keeps getting stuck. And so I want to repurpose that, that capacity from that lawyer away from doing intake and towards doing delivery. And I'm not saying stop doing intake entirely, although sometimes I do say that, but slow down the intake and speed up the delivery, right? So the, again, a lot of, when people come to me for help, the way they express their frustration is in the language of overwhelm, right? I am, feel like I'm chasing my tail. I feel like I'm on the hamster wheel. I feel like I spend so much time fighting fires that I never have time to do fire prevention. That's one I hear all the time. And part of the reason that's true is you keep lighting new fires, right? Every time you bring in a new client, you're promising them uh, legal work. Maybe it's not on fire, but you're creating a situation for that fire to occur. And so the metaphor I use is if your bathtub is overflowing, you've got only two levers you can pull. You can turn off the tap and you can open up the drain. And both of those are really important. But it's slowing down or turning off the tap that is going to have your first immediate benefit because that then helps give you a little bit more capacity to work on the outflow, to work on the opening the drain part. My gut reaction would be, you know, look, I got to pay the bills. We need to do business. So wouldn't it be better if the lawyer is the bottleneck, let's say he's got to prove the pleading, the brief, whatever, and he hasn't got to yet because he's been in meetings all day. Wouldn't it be better to figure out a way to address that work bottleneck? Maybe have someone else do it that can do it or... Sure. Yeah. Oh, no. I mean, la labor arbitrage is a great example. Delegating can work, but it only works if you're delegating the work at the bottleneck. So if you delegate the intake work, for example, you still got the tap on all the way and the bathtub's still going to keep overflowing. So you want to make sure, and, and this again, this is one of the, the word we use in Agile is an anti-pattern, right? Which is something that everybody does, but it's probably not the right thing. And one of the anti-patterns I see is number one, when people do process improvement, they like to start at the beginning of their process, which means they start at intake. But intake is usually where I'm trying to slow things down, not speed things up, um, as, as someone that does this professionally. Number two is that they think that all delegation is created equal. And one of the problems that I run into all the time is that lawyers delegate certain chunks of work, but then they still have to do quality assurance or a quality check on that. And it winds up, the delegation actually increases the load on the bottleneck of the lawyer as the reviewer, as opposed to decreasing that load. And so once we've got a process mapped out, one of the things I talk about all the time is, okay, great. If the bottleneck is in, Leo, you know, let's say that it's in this quality review thing, which is a, a really common place for it to be, and you need to free up a lawyer to do more of that quality review, 
don't delegate work that that lawyer is handling upstream of quality review because that's just going to increase the pressure on the quality review queue, right? That buffer is going to get longer and longer. Delegate the work that's downstream. One of the phrases I use all the time with my clients is close the closable. One of the biggest sources of too many balls in the air are cases that are kind of mostly done. Right. Maybe even from the client's perspective, they are done, but we haven't wrapped them up in our law practice management tool. We haven't closed the file. We haven't sent the disengagement letter. And we're always like, yeah, yeah, but that's not urgent. I'll get to it when I get to it. And nobody ever gets to it. And so if you're going to delegate work, delegate that work. Right. Get someone to actually focus on you know, clearing the drains a little bit. We're in the middle of an ice storm in Portland, Oregon, so uh, it is starting to thaw. So literally people are out clearing the street drains right now because otherwise people's basements are flooding, right? right? We, got, we got to clear those drains. And so delegate that stuff, even though it's not bringing in new work. The reality is, is that that new work that you're bringing in is just going to get stuck at your bottleneck anyway. And from a revenue perspective, and th this is one of the things I talk about, and it's, it's different depending on your billing model, right? If you're a contingency biller or you're a flat fee biller, then those bottlenecks are really killing you because all of the waiting, all of the follow-up, either it's causing you to do more work that isn't directly value-adding, or at the very least, it is taking away from that value-adding work, right? And so... Like I said, contingency billers and flat fee billers understand inherently the need to blow through those bottlenecks. Hourly billers, it's a little bit more challenging because like, well, yeah, but I can bill for that work, right? Some of this chasing down the homework or whatever, that's billable work. I get I get paid when I do that. And that's fine for me. Uh, and when I was practicing law, uh, and I think for a lot of the lawyers I know, that's not really what they want to be getting their money for, right? They want to be getting paid for the delivery work. They don't want to be getting paid the administrative work. And so if your profit model is contingent on you being inefficient, then I think you kind of got to take a hard look in the mirror. All right, switching gears a little bit. I want to get to this second agile manifesto item and get your take on it, what it means to you. Here it is. The best architectures, requirements, and designs emerge from self-organizing teams. What does that mean? That is an interesting one. So in the context of a larger technology company, and those larger technology companies often have different product lines or different features of their product. And, and so the idea there is that you want people that actually care about how to give people better and better recommendations on their Spotify playlists, right? That, that's an example of a function you'd, you'd run into in a, in a software team. In legal, it's harder. Again, it sort of depends on the size of the firm. But one of the things that it comes down to for me is that I can always help make a team more efficient if they're trying to do fewer different types of things. So is this in legal a practice group, your labor and employment group, vis-a-vis -vis your commercial litigation? Often it's a practice group. You got it. And the classic example for me, and, and you know, I don't always go this way, but I work with a lot of estate planning and estate administration clients. And I have convinced a couple of them to drop one or the other of those two practice areas because the process, the workflow, the template, even the, the customer need, the client expectations around the estate planning process are very different than the templates, the workflow, and the customer needs around the probate or the trust administration process. And so when we talk about basically building around single teams, 
that's kind of what I'm talking about is as much as possible, I don't want people to be context shifting because context shifting is expensive from a workflow standpoint. Now, I also recognize that it can also be a recipe for boredom, right? You don't want to get too like ingrained. And so I've got some teams that I work with that actually run rotations, right? And so they'll work on the estate planning side for maybe oh, three or six or nine or 12 months, and then they'll shift and they'll kind of do a reshuffle and say, okay, just to keep things fresh and get new perspectives, we'll, we'll shake it up a little bit. So let's talk about practical things legal teams can do to get started with some agile processes. I know one of the principles is start where you are. What does that mean? And where do you start? So it is, it's, it's one of the biggest urges that people have, especially when I'm building a Kanban board with them. So that, that's often my first step is to create a visual model for the workflow that they already have. So step one is the Kanban board. Step one. Is the Kanban board, right? There's different ways to do that. Some people will use flowcharts or other sort of visual tools. I like the Kanban board because it's something that we can actually turn into a useful tool as opposed to just an artifact that you're going to say, okay, well, that's interesting. I'm going to put it on the shelf and never look at it again. Defining those columns on the board to say, these are the states of work of our practice, and then adding cards to that board that represent the individual matters or cases that we're handling. That is always the step one. Which is easy. Anybody can do that. You don't have to get software. You got a whiteboard? There you go. My favorite way. You don't even need a whiteboard. You put sticky notes on a wall and then list some other things underneath them. Your brain will put columns there. You don't even need painter's tape to make the lines, although sometimes I'll I'll use blue painter's tape to make the line. So it's super easy. The thing that's hard is that there's a tendency to say, oh, well, that's like, you almost do this two-step when you're creating the board where you're like, okay, this is what I do, but I know I shouldn't be doing it that way. And so I'm going to redesign it as I build it. And I really try to bite that urge uh, when I'm working with clients because we want to see your workflow as it really exists not your sort of ideal conception of it. Because number one, we want to see where those bottlenecks really are. And if you start idealizing and changing things right out of the chute, you don't get good information that way. But number two, they're there for a reason, right? They evolve that way and good or bad or historical, whatever. By the time people get to me, they already have reasonably successful law practices. I'm not a law firm rescue um, type consultant. So I don't want to throw any babies out with the bathwater. Right. Yeah, we are going to try to identify some opportunities to improve, but we're not going to just start improving. Um, Getting back to the philosophies and you mentioned lean. uh, One of the sort of godfathers of lean is this guy, W. Edwards Deming. Uh, I won't dive too deep. He's got his own sets of philosophies that people hew really closely to. But one of the things that Deming cautions against that I think is really important is he says, be really sure you know the difference between improving and tampering. Right. Or overcomplicating things, right? You don't want to overcomplicate. Or changing things without paying attention, and therefore something's different. Maybe it's better, maybe it's worse, but we just changed six different things, so we can't put a finger on what actually caused this thing to happen. And so I try to really slow people down a little bit and say, yeah, this is going to take a little bit longer in the early stages, especially once we make the work visible. You'll be like, oh, my God, I need to do this and this and this and this. And I get it. The instinct is real. I try to really say, "Okay, like, yeah, let's take all those ideas that you have. Let's put them maybe on their own little Kanban board. Right. And say these are the possible things we can work on. 
And now let's prioritize them. And let's figure out this is the one we think is going to be most impactful, number one. Number two, what are we going to measure to know whether this thing worked or not? How are we going to take a step back and, you know, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, or even a year from now, how are we going to look at this and say, yeah, this thing we tried, it worked because we measured this thing and we got an output. Okay, so you got your Kanban board, which again, it's not easy, not the right thing to do, but I mean, it's something that's... It's simple. Yeah, it's simple and it's, you could get it done. I mean, it's not going to take you a million years to get it done. So then what's the next thing somebody can do after the, setting up the board? So <laughs> the next thing is hard and, and it's funny because the visualization of the work really is magical for people, right? And, and one of the things I hear all the time is, once they see their work in this sort of Kanban interface, this Kanban view, you can't unsee it, right? Your brain starts to think in terms of Kanban a little bit. So that is really impactful. The next most impactful thing is what in the Kanban world we call implement WIP limits or work in process limits, which is basically just a fancy way of saying, don't have so many balls in the air at once. One of the unofficial slogans of the Kanban method is, stop starting in order to start finishing. I like and that. the idea of a whip limit, and a whip limit is a literal number that says, okay, we are not going to have more than three matters in intake at any one time, right? Or overall for the board in general, uh, we believe that this law firm has a carrying capacity of 50 total cases. And we're not gonna start a new case on intake until we get down below 48 or 47 or 45. And that's how we know that we're never going to put ourselves over capacity, right? Because almost all of the problems that, that I see in terms of the feelings of overwhelm that I talked about, in terms of quality problems, in terms of client relation problems, uh, at an extreme level, in terms of bar complaints, they come from lawyers and law firms that are running their practices over capacity. They are trying to do more work than they're actually capable of delivering, and they wind up missing something. And then I think, too, to close the loop here, I think you're a big proponent of scheduled meetings, like repeatable meetings to see what's being done on the, on the board. Yeah, you know, the somewhat, I don't know, cultish term that some of the Agile folks will use is ceremonies. That's a little much for me. I just say, let's get things on a cadence, right? I love the daily standard. Right, I and agree. That's one we of the have one in my like, company every day. It's great. Yeah, and lawyers really push back on that, right? Because it feels inefficient. But what they don't realize is that a well-run stand-up. It can be 10, 15 minutes. That's it, yeah. My general rule is that a stand-up shouldn't take much longer than 90 seconds times the number of people on the team. Right. Right? It should be really quick. And it's not a complete download of everything that you did yesterday, right? It's really about... What are the things that made progress yesterday? What are the things that we need to make progress on today? And what roadblocks are in our way? Full stop, right? And that's it. That can be the end of the meeting. Now, if there's a roadblock, maybe you're going to have a little get together after that standup uh, between, you know, the person that's experiencing the roadblock and the person who can bust through the roadblock. And they may do a little bit of work to try to, to get that roadblock out of the way. But that's not part of the standup. Not everyone else on the team has to be part of that conversation. And so as long as we can get that going, then I think it works really well. I also love, and my good friend, uh, Melissa Shanahan, who is Velocity Work, and she has a Law Firm Owner podcast, she's got this cadence she refers to as the Monday map and the Friday wrap. In Agile, that's just a weekly planning meeting and a weekly review meeting. But I like her formulation of it. And it's basically, it also doesn't have to be on Mondays and Fridays. It could be any time. But it's basically saying, 
being intentional and sitting down with the team and saying, these are the four or five or 10 matters in our practice that absolutely positively have to make progress this week. And this is the progress we need to see, right? So it's making that plan, but then it's also closing the feedback loop and saying, okay, we said that these eight matters needed to make this progress. How did we do, right? Maybe we, maybe we overcommitted. Maybe we thought something was going to be easier than it was, or maybe we forgot that the main lawyers got a, a dentist appointment that afternoon, or maybe they didn't anticipate an ice storm and school being closed. And so now there's childcare issues, but whatever it is, it's, closing that feedback loop and saying, yeah, we thought we were going to do this. We actually did this. Now, how can we use that information that we learned the next time we make a plan in order to make a better plan? All right, John, appreciate your time. If people want to get a hold of you, learn more about your services, engage you, where do you want to send them? I'm at agileattorney.com. You've cut me a time. I'm relaunching the Agile Attorney podcast. So if you're already in a podcast player, love it if you did a search for Agile Attorney podcast and check that out. And then I'm on all of the various socials uh, in some form of Agile Attorney. If you Google Agile Attorney, you're going to find me. Okay, that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc. Also, if you like us enough, I hope you leave us a favorable review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.